This interview of Wisdom from the Top was recorded in 2020. From Luminary and Built It Productions, it's Wisdom from the Top. Stories of crisis, failure, turnaround, and triumph from some of the greatest leaders in the world. I'm Guy Raz, and on the show today, Ken Hicks, the former CEO of Foot Locker. I remember first time I walked into a Foot Locker, a wall of shoes, and I said, what's the best shoe? They said, walk over and say, this one. I said, how do I know that? And so you go into a store now, and we highlight shoes. We tell stories. Tell the customer this is important. Make a big statement of it so the customer knows this is important. Ken Hicks on why a store should tell a story. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. In the market for investment-worthy bags, watches, and fine jewelry, Rebag is the answer. Rebag is a luxury resale platform where each piece is carefully inspected by experts to ensure quality and authenticity. Use Rebag to buy and sell finds from the world's top brands, including Louis Vuitton, Chanel, and Cartier. Head to Rebag.com and get up to 15% off your first purchase as a member with code REBAGNEW. Shop today at Rebag.com. That's R-E-B-A-G.com. And use promo code REBAGNEW for up to 15% off your first purchase as a member. The idea that a business is fundamentally a story is a fairly recent concept. Business, for the most part, was about the product or service, and specifically its price and quality. But as marketing became more sophisticated in the second half of the 20th century, price and quality alone weren't enough. To compete and to win, you had to tell a story. Now, today, if you go to any company's website, you'll most likely find a link called About Us or Our Story. Businesses have started to understand that a story is what connects your product to your consumer. And in the sports apparel business, without a story, you're dead. Which is what Ken Hicks learned early on in his career, and it's a lesson he took with him to Foot Locker. When he got there in 2009... The company was mired in the Great Recession. Sales at Foot Locker were down almost a billion dollars from the previous two years. And the brand was widely expected to collapse along with indoor shopping malls. But three years in, sales were up $2 billion. And the secret to that turnaround, Ken says, was storytelling, helping customers tell their own stories through shoes. Ken Hicks grew up in Houston, and he decided to attend the U.S. Military Academy at West Point, not out of a passion for the military, but simply because it was free. In high school, he was a standout football player who briefly considered playing college football in Texas. So you were actually a good, a pr- pretty good football player if you were considering going to play in college. Well, it, it was a small school, but I, I did play a couple of years at West Point. Uh, I had a unique talent. I could stand on my head and throw the ball accurately between my legs. <laughs> I was a long snapper. <laughs> and I, little did I realize you can now make a career doing that. Yeah. 
Sure. So you get to West Point. Um, I think it's in the early 70s. This yeah, is the this, 1970. This is the height of the Vietnam yes. War era. You you must have assumed in 1970 that you would uh, once you were done graduated you were, you were going to be shipped off. Oh yeah, there was the understanding, and all of our instructors were military officers, and they had all been. Did you ever think of making a, a career out of it? I mean, did you think? Oh, yeah. Obviously, you got to make a commitment to when you graduate to from West Point, you got to stay for a couple more years. Did you think, All right, this is going to be my life? Yes. In fact, I stayed. You had a five-year obligation. I stayed six years mm-hmm. um, because I, I was a commander. I was enjoying what I was doing. And uh, when I, my command was ending, you know, there was the, talking to the Army about what to do. And I had a couple of instructors that I really uh, was impressed by who were Harvard Business School graduates. Hmm. And I thought I would really like to go there. And fortunately, West Point was willing to send me and then come back and teach. But at the end of 20 years, I was going to be a lieutenant colonel, whether I was good, bad, or indifferent. Hmm. Uh, but if I went to Harvard and went into the civilian world and then I had the GI Bill, you know, I could possibly go out into the business world and see what I could make of myself. So I decided to go on my own, not have the army send me. And, uh, you know, that, that was also another very fortuitous decision. Fortuitous because it was sort of the beginning of a pivot in your, in your life, a pivot away from, I mean, obviously going to West Point, you learn about leadership, um, but you don't learn about how to, how to run a, a business necessarily. Yeah, I, I say at West Point, they teach you how to lead and think. At Harvard, they teach you how to think and solve problems. And when I, I tell people, when I entered uh, Harvard, the thing I knew how to do best in the world was shoot cannons. Hmm. And when I graduated from Harvard, um, the thing I knew how to do best in the world was shoot cannons. Hmm. You know, I had learned things about business but i didn't know business yeah Uh, i'd spent the summer between years at at harvard working on an oil rig as a roughneck because i felt i wanted to go in the oil business Hmm. but when i graduated in 82 from harvard uh, it was a bust oil bust so i wasn't going to do that so i went to work for mckinsey to learn more about business and and i'd say i learned at mckinsey how to think and you know develop solutions to problems, not just solve them, but implement the solutions. So you're at at McKinsey, the consulting firm, for about, I guess, about four years, 83 to 87. Right. And then you go to the the May department stores. And a lot of people may not remember May, that name doesn't exist anymore. Uh, It would eventually be rolled into the Macy's department store chain. Yeah. Uh, But but May's department stores, probably most of their business, I'm assuming, came from from women's apparel, maybe like home goods. How did you get into that? Well, the CEO of of May department stores was a gentleman by the name of Dave Farrell. Kind of a retail legend. Yes. We should should mention. 27 years of consecutive quarterly profit increases. Not 27 quarters, 27 years. (laughs) And- he had developed this position, strategic planning position, where his goal was to bring in people from the consulting world. Mm-hmm. You would work for him. I, I, I said I carried his clipboard. You know, he was the head coach, and I carried his clipboard on the sideline for three years. And then he would put you in a in a you know retail role, and you would develop up to be a leader in the business. And 
that was what I did. We're talking about the kind of the the heady days of retail, right? You were there from 87 yeah. to 98. And uh, May was a department store and people shopped at department stores. Obviously, the tide was starting to turn yeah. then. And, and e-commerce was just barely starting to, to kind of pop up at the end of your time there. But, you know, department stores were, were like, they, they were like printing money at a certain point. They were, they were doing really yes. well. It was a great business. Um, so you could look at somebody like David Farrell and say, look, he had it easy. I mean, I, he, all he had to do was just, you know, go to his office and they were going to print money. But I suspect it wasn't as easy as that. I mean, what, what did you learn from him watching him that made him a, you know, this like retail legend? Like, what did you see that he did that made him different? I, I think there were several things. Uh, he would, he, to say he was intense would be an understatement. But he, the focus that he put on things and the way he approached a problem. There was a friend of mine who saw me in the store and, and he said, I saw you in the store. And uh, I said, well, why didn't, in Houston, why didn't you stop by and say hi? He said, yeah. well, you were standing in front of the watch case with Dave Farrell. Mm. And I said, you know, I was in front of that watch case for three and a half hours with him. And and I go, I was praying, you know, strike me with lightning, get me away from here. But to this day, I can still tell you the three points that he was trying to make. Or, uh, that One, identify what was important. And it was, at the time, it was fossil color face watches. Two, hmm. buy it in depth. You didn't buy it in enough depth. And three, show it so the customer gets the story. And a few months later, I'm walking through the store with the person who was ultimately with, with uh, was Farrell's replacement at May. And as I walked through the store, he was, move this here, do this, do that, do this. And I, I had a yellow tablet with three pages of things to do. When he left, I looked at the tablet and said, he can't remember all this. I can't do all this. I threw it away. Hmm. And Dave was, was all about focus. He was also all about responsibility. Because unlike somebody telling me, move this from here to here, he would explain to me why I should do it, but left it up to me. Hmm. It was my decision. I asked him one time, I said, why don't you just tell somebody to do something? And he said, if I do, then it's my responsibility. Hmm. If I get them to understand why and convince them to do it, it's now their responsibility. Yeah, as a leader, you're going to be more effective if you can get people to buy into your vision rather than to kind of top down, right, to, to sort of order, you know, you, no one wants to run an authoritarian business, right? Because people are just going to fear you, but they're not going to really believe in you. Well, the, the other thing is, and there, there's a model, it's called the army game, that I will do everything you tell me to do and I will be successful because I'll do everything you tell me to mm -hmm. do. You will be unsuccessful because at some point you're not going to tell me something I need to do. Yeah. And it won't get done. And so the the important thing is getting people I use Eisenhower's definition of leadership, getting people to want to do what you want them to do. And if they do that, then they own it. And they will actually take the initiative and do more as opposed to just what you tell them. Yeah. No, it's, I mean, it's, it's, uh, I mean, it's, it's interesting because there's a theme on this show with, with current and former CEOs who talked to. General Petraeus has been on the show. And uh, it's true. I mean, you look at the way he, he ran his teams in Iraq and at, at you know, at CENTCOM, at CIA. And 
uh, it was uh, all these really smart people that were empowered to make decisions. And if if they if they made a bad decision, they owned it too. I mean, obviously, yeah. he's ultimately you're ultimately responsible as the boss. Yes. But um, you know, you 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 can't um, you can't micromanage. Well, and that was one of the other Dave's other strengths was he put people in positions who were smart, had the horsepower and the drive to accomplish what he wanted to accomplish. Hmm. And that's that's an important part of that. You can't give people the responsibility and they're not capable. Yeah. I tell people three things I ask you to do. Do what's right, think and try your hardest. If you do those three things and you're not successful, then either one, I haven't given you the right resources and training to do it, or two, you're not the right person. So you spent a, a, a lot of years at May, and I guess in the late 90s, uh, you become president of Payless Shoes, which was a division of May. Um, and pay- Payless is a little, I guess, a little like kind of like the H&M model, right, but, but with shoes. They're, I mean, they were looking at other designs, and they were making their own versions of them, but um, but you know, much lower price point. So you are, you're now the head of Payless, more or less, right? Like uh, at this point, the president is that right? Right. I had all the all the stores, all the merchandising, all of that reported to me. So you are you are the boss now. Step on the balcony for a moment and look at yourself as the boss of that that operation. What were you like? Were you the kind of guy that got mad or or just super calm or what was the model that you kind of started to follow at that point? I I, I was. Uh, you know, I was adapting. When I was young, I was there. There were a number of buildings with holes in the wall where I, you know, put right. my fist through it. Right. But, but I, by that time, I had evolved, and when I needed to step up and be more intense, I was. When I needed to be, you know, less intense, I, I hopefully I was. Sometimes I wasn't. But the thing that happens as a leader, and I, I learned this from Farrell. He would go into a store that's doing well and he would be extremely tough on them and a store that was doing poorly and he'd be easy i asked him i said why are you easy on them and hard on him and he'd say because a good person will be harder on themselves than i ever will be when they're down Hmm. and what i need to make sure of is the person who's up never slows down so i've got to keep pushing i just saw that film uh, ford versus ferrari which is a terrific terrific movie and there's a scene where the actor who portrays henry ford ii addresses the um you know the the line that the guys in the line um in the factory um you know building fords and he just they shut down production and he just shouts at all you know hundreds of these men on on the factory line and he says you know we're getting our butts kicked by chevrolet um if you want to keep your job you you know you leave today you go home and you tell us why we should keep you here i mean it was just a very you would never see that in a company today right employees are just no yeah it's a completely different Thank yeah, God. It, by, it, by the way, thank but, God. But even, and I think that the thing that we've learned is as a group, that probably doesn't work. As, as, you know, you may have to say that to an individual because they're underperforming. But as a group, what happens is it bounces off of people because everybody says, well, he's not talking to me. He's talking to the person next to me. Mm. You know, it's the old, you know, praise in public, criticize in private. But the thing, thing that I found is, you know, I, I, Probably when I'm doing things like that, I'll use more humor and questions, if you will, to try to get the people to understand what's the right thing to do. And, yeah. you know, ask them, well, did you think about this? And then ultimately, no. You know, and walk them out on the limb until they finally realize, oh, geez, I, I shouldn't have done that. Yeah. 
I mean, a lot of the the, the leaders that we've had on the show, um, they specialize in taking over distressed companies. That this is like kind of their thing. You know, that this is what really gets them juiced up. You know, they they want to go to a yeah. company that is in distress, that is 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 uh, on its last breath, and they come in. And we've had Uber Jolie who who turned Best Buy around, for example. Really cool story. Terrific guy. Um, you got to pay less shoes, and it was not in distress. This was a strong company when you got there, right? Yeah, and it, w- it was in good shape. Uh, I can honestly say just the opposite happened. When I when I left it, we weren't in such good shape, uh, which created an opportunity for me uh, to leave. But uh, you know, there was a there was a downturn in the economy, yeah, and sure. uh, you know, one of the things I found because since then I've gone into companies that were in tough situations, Pennies, Foot Locker, mm. uh, and I found it's easier to take something up than it is to hold something up. Yeah. To your point, that's one of the reasons why people like distress situations is, hey, look, if if I go up, I'm a hero. If it goes down, well, that's where it was. Yeah. But the, the thing that was happening to Payless at the time, when, when Payless was was growing like a weed, literally adding, you know, four or 500 stores a year. Yeah. Uh, we were it. There was nobody else selling $10 shoes that had fashion. And then Walmart and Target got into the business. Mm-hmm. And when I left, we were still the largest. And then I think about two years later, Walmart was the largest shoe retailer in the country. Wow. And, you know, ultimately, you know, retail has evolved through the years from small shops to department stores to specialty stores to big box to mm. um, direct-to-customer catalog to online. But there are people who've been able to make the change, and there are people who huh. haven't been a- able to make the change. But even even before that, when you left Payless, right, when you think back to that time, because I think you left in 2002, you were there for about two and a half, three years, and, and then you went to JCPenney, and you would be you'd be at Penny's for about seven. But when when you think back to your time at Payless, right, um, and you you could see the writing on the wall. You could see WalMarts and Targets coming in, and big competitors, and you could see them eating into your business and your revenue. Um, and and you know today, now looking looking at other CEOs, what it means to pivot and how to kind of see the writing on the wall and, and adapt and adjust. What what would you have done different with all the wisdom you have now, looking back then, that could have maybe possibly changed things at Payless? I I think. You know, the, the thing that uh, probably had to do was change the product mix um, and and take it a little uh, bit more upscale, but at the, which meant you had to have less stores. Yeah. And what, what Payless did uh, was they went upscale, but they kept the same number of stores. And I said, for every dollar we went up in price, we needed to close between three and 400 stores. Yeah. Because we lost that many customers. And the problem was when you keep the large number of stores with the higher price, you don't have the profitability to support them. Wow. I mean, it's it's really cool because it, you, you can start to see like the evolution of your your kind of leadership journey here, right? It's It's a turning point, really. It's, of course, you go into a business wanting to do everything you can to make this successful there's going to be a variety of factors out of your control that can, you know, can can make it go in different directions. You leave, you go to pennies, and uh, and and 
you take all of this knowledge that you had from now the shoe business and you start applying, I guess, some of the, those learnings and understandings to your new, your new position at JCPenney. Yeah. And, and, you know, was very fortunate, had again, uh, worked for mm. great people in, in Alan Questrom and what we did again, and this goes back to my time with Farrell, we really focused on what we wanted to do and, we were we were going to build strong uh, private brand business. It was fifty percent of the business. We were going to have businesses where we were the place to go. We sold more suits than anybody else, more women's dresses. We were the largest um, textile retailer, home textiles uh, retailer outside of Walmart. And then we started going after brands, um, and we had a number of brands that we put in to complement the private label. In shoes, for example, we did have Steve Madden. And, you know, we put those together. And, you know, after four years when Alan was leaving, it was viewed as the retail turnaround of the decade. Yeah. Then, of course, turned around again. <laughs> Started yeah. turning well, around again. Yeah. 2000, 2008 happened. 2008, 2009 happened. Yeah. And and unfortunately, pennies didn't come out of that. Yeah. Um, you know, other retailers came out of it. Pennies didn't come out of it. And, you know, the rest is a, probably a Harvard case study. Uh, but, you know, we, we, were, we were in a good position uh, at the time. And I, I've said for a long time, that in, in the general merchandise, there's going to be one high-end, one upper moderate, one moderate, and then a discounter. Hmm. And it was, who's it going to be? And, you know, so it, at the time, I thought it was going to be Neiman's at the high-end. Now, it looks like it's going to be Nordstrom's. Macy's is there at the upper moderate. Um, you know, it was going to be Kohl's or, or Penny's, I thought, but now it looks like it may be Target. Actually, yeah. will be in that position, and then Walmart, of course, at the at the discount. Um, yeah. and that that you know, we were evolving to that. Yeah. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is plushcare. Plushcare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Generative AI is not a one-size-fits-all. 
If you're powering a customer chat experience, you need instant speed at low cost. If you're doing complex R&D or advanced analysis, you need frontier intelligence. The Claude 3 model family from Anthropic offers a model for every task and budget. Claude 3 Opus sets new industry benchmarks for intelligence. Sonnet strikes the perfect balance between speed and skill. And Haiku is the fastest and most cost-effective model on the market. Join the thousands of enterprises who trust Anthropic to power their AI solutions. Visit anthropic.com slash Claude today. Yeah. I mean, I've, I've had conversations with um, former folks from Penny's and Macy's and other apparel retailers and department stores. And it reminds me a little bit of, like, uh, of American Express, right? In 1980, we had Ken Chino on. In 1980, at American Express, if you got there, that one of their biggest businesses was traveler Traveler's checks. checks. Yeah, okay? I, yeah. Exactly. It was like printing money because people would buy them and not spend them, not and, use them, <laughs> and not use them. So it was a, it was a huge business. If in 1980, if you were at American Express and you were saying we really got to focus on credit cards, people would say yeah, yeah, yeah. But you know what? Let's this this traveler's checks thing is still bringing us. It's like newspapers. You know, classified ads yeah. were still making them money even in the 1990s. It was only after Craigslist. That that whole business blew up, but clearly retailers, you know, people at Penny saw what was happening with the internet, with e-commerce, right? And yes, what explains it? Like, why Target, not Pennies? You know, I mean, Target's a why does why was the Target the cool brand, and and not Pennies? Walmart's you can understand; it's just a beast, right? It, it just, yeah, it's it's a behemoth. Yeah, I, I think three of the things that helped make Target was one. They did what you said. They brought in these special things to make them uh, interesting. Yeah. You know, and the second thing is they did a much better job with the the basic uh, business they had. And the third was they did sell staples that created that trip. That was the problem with the pennies. You get people four times a year or Kohl's back five to times school, a year. That's it, right? Yeah. Yeah. And that was a holiday back to school, getting ready for summer. Mm-hmm. And, and yeah, but I have to go to Target all the time because I get my groceries there. And I, I liken it to, you know, in, in retail, the thing you have to remember retail is like an ice cream sundae. When you buy an ice cream sundae, what are you buying? Vanilla ice cream. Right. That's, that's 75% right. of what, what you're buying. Right. Then you put on, you know, the sauce. And is it chocolate sauce? Is it strawberry? Is it cherry? Whatever it is, that gives us its flavor. Mm. And so that's what people say, well, I just don't want vanilla ice cream, but I, oh, I would never eat a, you know, a, a chocolate sundae. I'd only have a hot fudge. And, and that is what gives it its flavor. And then you put the cherry and the sprinkles on top, that 5%. And that's what draws the eye. So, so, Target got really good with these special things that drew the eye. They had the, you know, the apparel and things were good. That's what gave it its flavor. And and they were interesting too. You know, they would have change out the colors and but the real business are those staples, that mm. that vanilla ice cream. Mm. And so as you think about it, you know, it's you know, you you'll always have to remember what people get caught up on is they try to serve you a bowl of maraschino cherries. 
Yeah. Nobody's ever gone into a place and said, I want a bowl of maraschino cherries. You have to have it in the right proportion. And I mm. think what Target has done is they put them in the right proportion. Was it a talent um, d- difference in talent, do you think? Or was it luck? Or w- what explains it? I think talent makes a difference. Timing and talent, you know, I use the analogy that if Patton were two years older, nobody would have ever heard of him. Wow. Because he wouldn't have been able to fight in World War II. He would yep. have been too old. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you've, you've got to, timing is, is, is important. But Target, what Target started making the change as the department stores started to decline and there was a void and they were able to come in with the changes they made so that the, the decline of department stores and their rise occurred at the same time. And then the third thing, and this is what's really important about retail and Surprised I haven't gotten to it yet. But they were able to execute it. Mm. Retail is all about execution. You can have a great plan. You know, I say half the team, over half the teams in the NFL run the West Coast offense. Only yep. one wins the Super Bowl because they have the best people and the best execution. Yep. Did you, I mean, it's this is not a secret. Anybody who follows retail or followed the story and, and may have heard of you, knew that you were you were widely thought to be the heir apparent, that you were going to be the CEO of Pennies. Um, did you want to, to be the CEO of Pennies? Yeah. Yeah, I, I would have liked that job um, at, the, at, at the right time. Yeah. Um, but, um, you know, I think looking back on it, I, I told my wife, I said, you know, best thing that ever happened to me was leaving pennies and having the opportunity at Foot Locker. Yeah. Um, and, and the timing wasn't right. I, I was starting to get to a point in my life, and it's the only time in my life where I ever moved because I, I wanted a promotion. Every other time I moved for an experience. Yeah. But when I left pennies, I said, if I don't get to be a CEO at the age I'm at, I probably wouldn't get to, to it. And Foot Locker offered it to me, and it worked out well for for me and hopefully for them. All right. You get to Foot Locker in 2009. In 2009, I would not put my money on Foot Locker. It's in shopping malls. No one's going to shop. You can see the writing on the wall. People are – shopping malls are closing down. Uh, they're dead. They're empty. It's not – The sneaker business was at its nadir. Yeah. It's, it doesn't seem like a great, fun place to join. Tell, tell me what was going on at Foot Locker when you get there in 2009. Well, it, it, you know, stocks down to t- less than ten dollars. We've got five divisions in the United States: Foot Locker, Champs, Foot Action, Lady Foot Locker, Kids Foot Locker, and we have a, a dot com business called East Bay. We had some businesses over in Europe and in Australia, New Zealand, uh, Canada, and we were not performing well. We had we're in the middle of a war with our largest vendor, Nike. Why? Well. The genesis was that Foot Locker wanted more of the better shoes and didn't want them sold to other people. Nike said they did. Nike likes to have alternatives. Um, and they both cut each other off. I mean, how do you cut your, your biggest supplier off or how do you cut your biggest customer off? And they stopped doing business. It was not a good situation. And so all of those things are going on. This was 2008, 2009. Half the CEOs in retail were being fired and they were looking for somebody. And, you know, a number of them came to me. But I looked at Foot Locker and I said, you know what? 
It's a great brand. Hmm. It's it's a product that that has affinity. I saw the the rise of of sneakers was coming again. We had international. We had we were way underdeveloped in .com because all we had was this East Bay business. But our Footlocker.com, Champs.com were nothing. And I said, you know what? This could be something. Hmm. One of the first things we were competing with ourselves. I would go into a store and I'd ask him how they were doing. He says, "Oh, I'm doing I'm doing pretty well." I said, well, "What do you mean? You're down five. And he said, "Yeah, but Champs is down seven and Foot Action's down ten, so I'm pretty good." Mm-hmm. I said, "No, you, you know." I said, "Well, how are you doing against you know the dicks in the mall?" Well, I have no idea. And I said, "I want you to beat the other guys." Yeah. So point the guns out. And we one of the parts of our strategy was we defined a place for they they. They literally on Monday would sit there and they would say, "Okay, Foot Locker sold so many of the shoes. I want them in Champs and Foot Action." And they all looked alike. And so, if you went in one of our stores, you didn't need to go into the other. Right? They all looked the same. Foot Locker, Lady Foot Locker, Kids Foot Locker, Champs Foot Action, East Bay. They, there no was differentiation. No, there's no point no. to have all those different brands. So here's my question: Like, if I'm coming in at that point, right? Because I I remember like well, I was like Lady Foot Locker, Kids Foot Locker, Foot Locker. It all looks the same. Why don't you just have? I would have thought. The best thing to do is to just make them all Foot Locker. Just say, you know what? Everything's going to be Foot Locker, like Macy's did, you know? Uh, but you actually did decided to actually really emphasize their differences. Create difference. So so Champs was about the athlete. Yeah. Foot Locker was the, the you know, the sneaker culture. Uh, foot Action was all about fashion. So I would wear, I'd say, okay, Champs is for the athlete. You know when they're going out out, out to play sports. Yeah. Foot Locker is what you wear all the time. Yeah. Foot action is Saturday night. Uh, you know, you, you, I laughed. Kids Foot Locker was about young girls. Hmm. You know, teenage girls because they could buy the kids shoes. And we said no, kids is going to be about kids. We started each of the divisions was defined. We also looked at international. Europe was way underdeveloped, and one of the things that we learned is that Europe's not the same. In Italy, their idea of athletic behavior was going to get a, a latte or a you know cappuccino. Mm-hmm. They they wore them all about fashion. In Germany, it was all about function. In Spain uh, and Portugal, in France, it was all about you know the basketball. And once we we define that. We basically we're going to double the number of stores in in Europe. Hmm. So how do you then you come in? You've got all these different companies, right? These brands. It's like a lot of. I mean, this is a lot of moving parts, a lot of balls to juggle, right? Um, and you want to start to really differentiate and emphasize these brands. You you've got to embark on a rebranding strategy in addition to a revenue generating strategy. What what do you do? How do you how do you start to do that? Well, we were we were very tops down when I got there, and, and everything was run from the corporate office in in New York, New York City, and we, you know, I that wasn't the way I wanted to operate. Champs was in Florida, both Foot Action and, and Foot Locker were in New York, East Bay was in East Bay, Wisconsin, and then we had our divisions in the different countries, and I told them I wanted them to be responsible. They got their own marketing. We had all marketing was done out of New York at corporate. And I basically took the marketing out of corporate. It went away Mm -hmm. and each of the divisions got their own marketing. Uh, So each of the divisions, now there were things like finance and stuff where we could keep, you know, the the computer systems and we could keep those corporately. But, But the operations and responsibility was 
was spread out amongst the company. Here's what I'm wondering, right? To be successful, if you're Foot Locker, you've got to have a great relationship with Nike and Adidas. Yeah. But at the same time, so so Nike is your biggest uh, supplier and customer, but also their competitor. They've got their own shops. They've got their own retailers. Um, and they can also really mess with you, right? Yeah. I mean, you needed Nike. So what did that mean from your perspective as, as the head of Foot Locker? I mean, were you... Was it like going to the Pope and, and kissing the ring? Well, um, f- first of all, I, I tell people I've operated in businesses where I had 100 vendors and none mattered. And I've operated in businesses where I had, you know, five that were the overwhelming majority of the business. Yeah. I prefer the five because it's easier to manage five than it is 100. Yeah. Um, but, you know, one of the first things I did was I, I went to Portland, I went to Germany, and I met with the key vendors and, you know, sat down with them and told them. And I remember having a conversation with Mark Parker, who's a terrific person, CEO of Nike, uh, and said to him, listen, I've been married at the time, you know, um, 30 some odd years. And I said, it can be good or it can be bad, but we're married. Yeah. And we need to figure out how to work and make it better and and we started having top to tops two or three times a year with them we'd have a home and away and then a you know a, a neutral site where we'd go visit stores and markets we spent a lot of time with them our team you know stressed the fact that we're partners and you know sometimes we would do things they didn't want they would do things we wouldn't want mm. and we'd work it out because it's important to recognize that you know, and it's the same thing that I feel about a customer. You know, your, your partners, you, if both of you aren't happy, mm-hmm. then it's not successful. Yeah. Are you a sneaker wearer? Um, yes. I, I, in fact, one of the things I did when I got to, to Foot Locker was, um, you know, they we dressed business casual. And I said, okay, I'm going to wear sneakers Absolutely. every day. They were like, what? You, and... So when I would board meeting or go to some other industry thing and I'd be wearing a suit with sneakers, all the other CEOs would go, that is so cool. I wish I could do that. I said, yeah. you can. There's nothing wrong with it. So, I mean, you did, you exceeded your goals and the stock price by the time you left as CEO in 2014. You know, it's in, I think today, it's in, I don't know what it is now because the market's crazy, but it well, was- Well, we went from a $2 billion market cap to $8 billion. So of course you had the benefit of- the economy roaring back after the Great Recession, and and then there was kind of this new interest in in shoes and the sneakerheads coming yeah. coming and and you know some really cool um, partnerships between Nike and and athletes and Adidas and athletes. But I mean, you're still mainly in shopping malls, right? Foot Locker was still mainly in shopping malls. Foot traffic in the United in, States in, in the U.S. Foot traffic in shopping malls. I mean, I don't know the last time I've been in a shopping mall. Can I haven't been in a shopping mall in five years? And and I don't think I'm atypical. But but so what explains it? How was Foot Locker growing? What was going on? We we developed a, a customer base and a following. I I tell the story that we there. You know, in fact, it still is true. They're closing these malls because the anchors and everybody are going away, but the right. Foot Locker is still viable. I, w- I went to a mall in Kansas City called The Landing. We had three stores in it, a Foot Locker, Kids Foot Locker, and, and a, a Foot Action. 
there were three hair salons, two nail salons, a threading salon, and a tobacco shop. That was all that was left. Wow. All, those three stores were profitable selling the company wow. average. But the thing that we, we were able to do, we became the anchor. And, and we had great customers. And we also sold, you know, we did the same thing in Europe. We were in all the high streets, Oxford Street in, in London. We, you know, we were on Champs-Élysées in Paris. Hmm. We, we had the ability to sell to a broad customer. Now, part of it was a product we had, and, and that, that was important. But we also really knew who our customers were. Because each of the divisions were down close enough to make that happen. Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. But what explains, I mean, yes, we have the financial crisis in 2009. But beyond that, as we know, JCPenney's, lots of companies didn't, didn't survive that, right? What explains it? I mean... What what did you do at Foot Locker? I mean, was it online business? Was it was it advertising? Well, was it, it marketing? Was it a message? You know what what? Yeah, what was your playbook? It was it's it starts it starts with with the product, you know, and and then the message, and then how you communicate that. So we we started going after online, and our online business was basically we were looking to discount. Said no, we 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 would we made it more about information and connectivity and we would have you know the 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 designer of a shoe would do a blog for us and people would come online to learn about the blog we'd tell them when the next release was coming out and so we used it for that and our dot-com business grew as a result which supported the store business and and we also in the stores we changed the presentation we'd walk when you used to walk into a footlocker there was a wall I remember first time I walk into a foot like a wall of shoes and I said, What's the best shoe? They said, Walk over and say this one. And I said, How do I know that? Hmm. And so you go into a store now and we highlight shoes, we tell hmm. stories, communicating to the customer. And that was one of the lessons that standing in front of that watch case, remember that Farrell taught me. Yeah. 
you know, tell the customer this is important. Put those colored face watches together. Make a big statement of it so the customer knows this is important. It, it seems to me, too, that one of the things that probably really helped was scarcity or at least the the impression of scarcity, right? Like you, you, I'm assuming you had kind of agreements with some of your vendors where they would only make a certain number of shoes that were only available maybe at Foot Locker and you could only get them at Foot Locker for a limited time. We, we, we did that. And so you talk about competing against Nike. Yeah. Whenever they put a store in the mall, our business would go up because one, we had a different customer, but what we would actually have a better assortment because we had their shoes. Plus we had our own special makeups. Mm -hmm. And so we would have more shoes and we would agree with them, you know, we would on, on releases, you know, we would push to get the most, but one of the things that Nike would do is make sure that there was competition. So they would give it to other people, but they knew we would manage it the best. And so they would give us more and, and that would draw more people to us than to the competition. I'm, I'm amazed. I mean, I, I it's, it's really interesting, but that when a Nike store would open in a shopping mall with a Foot Locker, traffic, your, the, the, the revenue at that Foot Locker would actually go up? Well, what would happen is, and I, the analogy I use is, when, when you go looking for a car, you ever noticed all the car dealerships are together? Yes, right. Because the customer says, ah, I know I want to buy a Chevrolet, but I'll go check out the Ford yep. and the, yep. you know, the Jeep and just, yep. just see that. They do the same thing. So they go into the Nike store. And they look and say, well, I'll go down to Foot Locker. See, oh, wow, Foot Locker's got more. I'm going to buy from Foot Locker. Hmm. And so somebody who might not have come into us but go to Nike, when they come down to us, they would realize we had a bigger assortment. But the Nike store would attract – it's like an Apple store. People just kind of like to go and look around. Yeah. 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 It's 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 more a showpiece. Yeah. I just I just uh, did that. Fine. In, I, just, that, I just did that in New York. I went into the uh, Adidas store on Fifth Avenue just to look around. It was really cool. But you're right. They don't actually have that many shoes. They got a lot of other stuff. Yeah. You know. And so we had a clear plan, and with the built the team. In fact, now we got rid of a couple of people. Wow. We've changed some jobs on some people, but they were all here. You didn't fire said, anybody. Still a good team. Uh, we we let a couple of people go. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it was not that they weren't capable. It was that they didn't fit yeah. the culture of what we were trying to do. And so, it was the same thing at Penny's. Huh. Went into Penny's. And, you know, Alan, when he was retiring, he looked up. My team was getting up on stage making a presentation. And he said, man, you got this is the best operations team you built. And I said, oh, but one of these guys was here. And they stepped up. Uh, and, and the thing is in life is do you continue to step up? Because you can you can step up once and say, okay, I'm, I'm safe, but no, the bar just keeps rising. Yeah. And you have to continue to rise with that bar. Makes sense. Ken, when you think about um, the trajectory of your career and your life, um, do, you, do you think that you learned how to, like, do you think you were born with the skills of a leader just inherently, you just had it? Or do you think that, you know, you really had to learn how to do this thing? I, I believe, <laughs> went to a school that, that, that believes in this, so I have to believe in it. I believe leaders are uh, developed. I believe that leadership is a practice skill. You can learn things to be a leader, but you have to practice it. I think one of the challenges that we have in business now is that many people don't get the opportunity to lead 
till they're 10, 15 years in their career. Yeah. And one of the reasons why people from the military have had success in business is because they get leadership very early on. Yeah. And they've made their mistakes. And 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 so and, and do you I mean even at this point in your career are you still do you still feel like you you're you're getting you're still learning how to be a leader? That you, you know, oh yeah. Oh yeah. I I I will I will do something and I will after after I do something I will tell one of one of my uh you know the people that I that I work with I'll say I did not handle that well or what what do you think I could have done mm-hmm. to do better at that and they're you know most people first of all aren't used to their boss asking them for some some advice like that but it's important to to be self-critical as as a leader and be be self-aware um I w- I was fortunate as I said all the way through my career I learned from some terrific people but I also learn more from the people I work with and work for me one of the best lessons I ever learned was when I first became a battery commander in the army and the first couple of months you know I was telling everybody what to do and doing all this you know, I'm a 25-year-old captain. I'm feeling pretty, you know, full of myself. And my first sergeant sat me down because we screwed something up. And he said, now, this is a guy who's 25 years in the Army, three tours in Vietnam, mm-hmm. you know, grew up inner city, Baltimore. And he sat me down and said, sir, you know, you aren't having much fun now, are you? And I said, no top. And that's what you call the first sergeant, top sergeant. No top. It's It's not working out the way I thought it would. And he said, well, the problem is you're trying to do too much. We will do our job. Hold us accountable. We won't let you down. And, you know, here's a guy sitting down with his boss, and he's got much more experience than his boss does, telling him how he should lead. Mm. And I remember First Sergeant Hall telling me that like it was yesterday. But I, I remember that story, and it's been important to me my whole life. That's Ken Hicks, former CEO of Foot Locker. Ken left Foot Locker in 2014. He's currently CEO of the sports and outdoor retailer Academy. And when he retired from Foot Locker, his friends at Nike gave him a pair of Air Force Ones that they'd printed with pieces of his life story. His wife's name, a picture of their Boston Terrier, and a nod to his football fandom. Hey, thanks for listening to the show this week. The music for this episode was composed and performed by Drop Electric. I'm Guy Raz, and you've been listening to Wisdom from the Top from Luminary and Built It Productions.